Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Miriam Knight, the publisher of New Consciousness Review, a digital multimedia magazine and website where we review the top books and films having an impact on the global awakening. Our website is ncreview.com. Now, on this show, we explore the many and varied faces of conscious awakening and what that can mean in your life. And today's guest is Colleen Morrow. She was the founder and editor-in-chief of Intuition Magazine. Her 30 years of experience in magazine publishing includes work as a publisher, editor, advertising director, and circulation and marketing consultant. Now, she had a lifelong interest in the untapped powers of the mind, which led to the launch of Intuition Magazine in 1988. Intuition explored the higher potential of the mind and the many and varied ways of knowing, intuition, inspiration, and telepathy, providing both research and how-to information in easy-to-read form for the general reader. Now, her book uh, that we are going to discuss today is actually titled Spiritual Telepathy, Ancient Techniques, to access the wisdom of your soul. Welcome, Colleen. I am delighted to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Colleen, I thought the title of your book was very interesting. Can you tell us the difference, if any, between spiritual telepathy um, or what we call normally call intuition or psychic communication? Well, I see intuition, uh, as it's most commonly talked about, as information that relates to our personal lives, you might think of it as horizontal information. It's information coming to us from beyond our human awareness about our daily lives, about our relationships, our work, and so on. I think a lot of it is instinctual. And spiritual telepathy could be called vertical communication. It's communication from the subtle worlds, from our own souls or from higher beings. And the, the information is always sent to us in a telepathic way. We don't actually audibly hear the information. The information is simply dropped into our brains where it becomes part of our conscious awareness. So it's a higher level of information. So when people uh, get either clairaudient or clairvoyant information, it's a lower level information? I think so, yeah. That's more, it's more um, clairvoyance. It's more horizontal information from the human field, you might say. <clears throat> Excuse me. So how would you categorize channeling? Channeling, well, it depends. There's different types of channeling. There's channeling as we knew it and where it was big in the 80s, which is a discarnate entity that uses a channel's body. And so it's not information that we ourselves generate. This is information that we can access directly from that higher level. Mm -hmm. Well, I was really impressed at how deeply researched your book was. And one of the most fascinating parts for me was when you described all the well-known figures in arts and sciences throughout history who openly acknowledged that their inspiration came from a higher realm. And it's like um, we went through this period where uh, the occult and, and psychic phenomena and intuition were sort of downgraded to woo-woo stuff, and they seem to be coming back into the mainstream. And I, I think actually because your book is so well-researched that your book will be a great help in that. Um, 
What, what, what is the main premise of the book? What will readers learn from it? Well, the main thing is that we all have the ability to access the soul and the higher levels. I've always been very touched when I read about um, experiences people have about connecting to the higher worlds. We have our saints and we have shamans, and we know that we somehow think these people are, are special. And it's always stirred a big longing in me. And I know that it also, in addition to our saints and shamans, it also seems to happen to seemingly ordinary people like Joan of Arc, and who talked to angels and saints, and Eileen Caddy, who received the guidance that led to the founding of the Finhorn community in Scotland, and the botanist George Washington Carver, who walked in the woods each morning to talk to God. And apparently God was talking back. He called it the divine radio. And I've always wondered, why does it only happen to some people? Are they more evolved than most of us, or is it preordained somehow? And what I discovered in immersing myself in this topic is that it's not just for the special people, that it is, in fact, our evolutionary destiny. Many spiritual leaders and philosophers and scientists are telling us now that we're poised on the brink of an evolutionary leap, and it's one as profound as our emergence from animal to human. When we make contact with the soul, we take our first steps out of the strictly human world and into the superhuman worlds. The subtle worlds then become part of our human experience and we move up a notch on the evolutionary ladder. Many books are coming out and in, in re- have come out in recent years describing people's conscious awakening um, and mystical experiences, and they tend to be so profound that they really change their lives, the course of their lives. And I was really interested in the experience that you describe that Mother Teresa had Mm-hmm. She had this one profound experience um, of, of union with the divine, and then it was like she spent the rest of her life looking to recover or recreate that experience, but was never able to do so. Uh, is that uh, more common than not? I think it is. I think it is. And it's, when I was researching and reading, about the wisdom tradition, this came up a lot, that um, spiritual telepathy is actually a stage beyond the mystical experience. And in the mystical experience, the um, person like Mother Teresa will connect with the higher worlds through the heart chakra, and it's through that intense longing and intense desire that it happens, but it's only a fleeting moment. And then you're sort of plunged into darkness as she was. It was very touching to read her letters. But when you actually develop the mind and the heart, then you, you, you become part of that world. You have access, direct access to that world. You don't have to um, long for it. You can just make that connection. So it's a higher stage. You have an interesting concept of the mind as being sort of uh, on three levels. Can you expand on that? Sure. It said that there's three aspects to the mind. The first is the rational mind. The second is the soul, which is considered to be our individual fragment of the divine mind. And the third is the higher mind. And so our first task is to make that connection between the lower mind and the soul. And when we do that, we have access to the higher worlds, to the universal mind, where information on all subjects can be found. And that's the experience that we call genius. And that was one of the most interesting parts of this research to me, is how many people that we consider geniuses describe their creative process in exactly that way. 
the wisdom teachings tell us that the soul is the portal to the higher worlds. And I found this over and over again where composers, writers, scientists say exactly that, that it's the soul that was their, their contact with the higher worlds. Did you find a lot of commonality among the different wisdom traditions and religions um, in their description of the soul and the spirit and, and this connection? Absolutely. And that was one of the things that was most interesting to me is that this um, teaching is actually the core teaching that exists at the heart of all religions. When I thought about this book, I thought a lot about the science books on the mind, Dean Radin's books and Lynn McTaggart's books, and how popular they were, and how the esoteric books, which are really just the flip side, it's the inner development that allows us to make conscious use of the extended mind, are still small in, in scope. They're, they seem to be um, geared towards a very select audience. So I looked at what I could do to try to expand the audience and try to interest some of this wider this wider group. And one of the things that was obvious right away was that this is a universal teaching. And so I decided not to put anything in the book that I couldn't actually say, hey, look, it's in all these different traditions. And that's why I spent so much time. I didn't really have a background in um, world religions. But I just read and read and read until I had a clear sense of it. So some of this stuff is pretty esoteric, but in all cases, I've shown that it's the same in all religions. How long did it take you to write the book? Oh, years, years and years. <laughs> yeah, way longer than I ever imagined. But I was so intrigued by the subject, I could see that it's the next piece of the intuition work that I did in the 90s, and I could see how important it was just to our own lives and evolution. And I wanted to do justice to it, so I just kind of sat here and just read and read and read until I found, figured out that I had enough information to go ahead and, and write the book. It's the sort of subject that you could never know enough about. And it's unendingly fascinating. It's Absolutely. also something that I keep on bashing on about in, in practically every interview that I do, about the importance, first of all, about the innate ability that we have to access um, our intuitive sources and um, the importance of it. Why do you think these skills are so important now? What's your take? Well, Alice Bailey talks about this, and she has a very interesting perspective, I thought. She said that there's three levels of perception. There's the instinct of early man, there's the rational knowing of modern man, and there's the pure intuitive knowing of the soul-aligned human being. And I think our, our intuition work of the 90s was mainly uh, reconnecting people with what we had lost when we developed that next higher way of knowing, which is the rational, that we have this other type of knowing that we had discounted. And it's really important. It doesn't go away. It just drops below the threshold of our conscious awareness. So we still do have these gut feelings. And years ago, no prominent person would have, would have imagined actually admitting that they make a decision based on that. And I really found it interesting that um, George Bush talked about being a gut player, and um, his homeland security person talked about how he had a gut feeling that there was going to be a new attack. And I thought that was fascinating because, like I said, years ago, nobody would have admitted to that. So it's become more commonplace and respected. But we're at that level now where we can access that higher level of information and I think that's so essential for two reasons one is that when we connect with the soul everything changes and we realize that we're part of a universal life the soul of humanity and we start to lose our personal ambition and, and, and desire to work for the greater good 
And we can also pull in higher levels of information, and we desperately need that, higher solutions to some of the world problems. And people that can do this, that have trained their minds to do this, I think are doing a great service. Absolutely. So it's both important on a personal evolutionary level and on a global. Is this uh, what you would call a sixth sense? Yeah, they, they, uh, in the wisdom teachings, they talk about the mind as being the true sixth sense, that it's um, convertible. It's designed to work in two areas. It can work in the outer world, and it can be trained to access information from the subtle worlds, too. So just as, as it um, provides information about the world around us, it can provide information from that higher level. And it's a process of training our minds through meditation to have an alignment of the brain, the mind, and the soul. If the information doesn't hit the physical brain, then we don't have conscious awareness of it. And that's really the basics, the basics of all the practices. And how do we go about training ourselves to do that? Well, I'm that? really glad you asked that question because that's really the heart of this. It's a process that we call creative meditation. And in most meditation practices, we just quiet the mind. And in this type of meditation practice, we actually go a step further, and we train the mind to make a bridge between the, lower, between the mind and the soul. And that's when we have access to the information. And it's a process of training ourselves day after day after day in this practice. And um, as we do this, as we extend our attention upwards, we anchor small threads of energy that eventually become a symbolic bridge between the mind and the soul. And that's when we have this free flow of information that we can actually access the subtle worlds at will. And that's really the high prize and the ultimate goal of this particular practice. I know that you referenced um, Brad Keeney's books on mm -hmm. uh, the Aborigine practices of uh, connecting to the, the cord to heaven. And you just mentioned the three chords that you also um, talk about in your various meditations. Mm -hmm. um, tell us where these chords attach and, and how are they a helpful metaphor? Well, I thought that was very interesting that I saw. I mean, this is what the, the wisdom teachings teach, is that there's basically a bridge, and it's a symbolic bridge between the mind and brain and the soul. So it's basically like a little cord that exists from the soul, brain, and mind. And so it, was, it shows up in these different cultures where they're thinking about it in exactly the same way. A lot of people, when they have out-of-body experiences, speak of a silver cord mm -hmm. uh, between their etheric body and their physical body. Do you think that that is one of the cords in question, or is that a different well, That's a different cord. I mean, it's a cord, but it connects us. I mean, there's two cords we said come from the soul. One is anchored in the head, and one is anchored in the heart. And um, the heart is the silver cord in the, in the Bible. It mm -hmm. connects us, feeds us, feeds blood to our nervous system, and so on. Sort of connects us physically to the earth. You talk about... Um, a universal human, um, and in fact, I interviewed Barbara Marks up a couple of weeks ago, and she also talked about the evolution of a universal humanity. Um, how do we become universal in our outlook? Well, she was the inspiration for that second chapter on the universal human, mm -hmm. and she says that we are the crossover generation responsible for leading the way from one 
stage of our species evolution to the next. And in my studies, what I found is that the universal human is somebody who has um, reached heart chakra development, that the heart chakra is the boundary line between the lower chakras, which have to do with our Earth evolution, and the higher chakras, which have to do with our spiritual evolution. It's sort of the, the borderline between the visible and invisible worlds. And when we start to open our heart, it's when we draw closer to our souls and we understand that we're all interconnected. And I think that's why there's so much focus on the heart right now with heart math and the movies that have come out and so on. But that's where we've become universal. We start to move from the personal to the universal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would you say that the, the concept of the universal human um, is the same in all the religions, or, or is it uh, antagonistic to religions? I don't think it's antagonistic, no. I think it's... Um, part of the chakra development system, which is in all traditions. The, the trouble I have with that, of course, is that um, most religions can be seen almost as um, social organizations or, or um, a, a, a form of social uh, connection. And in that, they try to um, create an, an exclusiveness to their identity and exclusiveness to the notion of of heaven and, and access to the afterlife. Do you see a movement within the religions towards a more universal, um, inclusive view? Well, all religions have an esoteric core. In Christianity, it's esoteric Christianity. In Islam, it's Sufism. And it's at that esoteric core that these teachings are the same. The outer, the outer level is different. But when you go to the very core of the teachings, you'll find the same teaching over and over. Now, that's an interesting uh, point when you note that there is the diff- distinction between the esoteric form or, or core of a religion and then its outward manifestation in the, among the masses. Um, would you say that there is a growing interest in esoteric religion? Absolutely, absolutely, especially in the West, because for many of us, the church doesn't do it for us. And there was some statistic just recently about how fewer and fewer, fewer and fewer people are actually considering themselves Christians. So I think people are really um, longing for this, and I know that I was. And I explored all the Eastern religions, but even though I had great respect for them, they somehow felt too foreign to me. And when I stumbled across esoteric Christianity, I just felt like I was home. Mm-hmm. That's been the main practice for me. What was it that made you feel so at home? Well, because it touched my heart. It talked about um, humanity in that universal way, and I realized then that it was saying the same things as the Eastern tradition, that we didn't really have to look there, that we could have these, that there were also contemplative practices which don't show up in the, in the wider church organization. And it's the contemplative practices that really connect us to our souls and to the higher levels. So it's really the the more mystical side of Christianity mm-hmm. that you are resonating with? Exactly. That what, what uh, how how were you brought up? Um, I was. Are we are we still recording? 
Um, I'm um, brought up as Catholic, and oh. I never read the Bible before. I was brought up Catholic and never re- read the Bible before. Interesting. Um, Colleen, tell me, um, what is your hope for the book? Well, the hope for the book is that people will understand that this is a universal teaching, and they will use the practices that I've given. There's actually 12 meditations. Eight are for personal development and four are for service. And I made them step by step because it's, these books are usually just presented in theory. And it's the actual practices that change us. It's the actual practices where we, we really understand the, um, the subject. Another thing that I did was that I interviewed people who have used these practices for years because I wanted to make it real for people so they can see how they've changed people's lives. I have a lot of my own information in there about how these practices have affected my life, but I also wanted to include the experience of others. You have a lot of uh, meditations from the Lucis Trust. Who are they? Lucis Trust is an organization that has published the Alice Bailey books. When I first started uh, studying this, I decided that I wanted some sort of training, and so I went there and I signed up to be a student in the Arcane School, and it's a very intensive multi-year training, and they take you step-by-step, starting with the basic meditation um, to the higher levels to where you finally are at the point where you can start building the bridge. So that's how I learned a lot of this. I've certainly come across that um, the the great invocation in many different contexts. Mm -hmm. Um, Why do you feel that it is so important, or or how does it speak to you? Well, it originated there, and it's been translated, I think, into um, 75 languages, and it's part of the meditation practice. When we are building that bridge to the soul, the soul light is coming into us, and it's a way to extend that information—excuse me—a way to extend that energy out into the world. It's like a blessing for the world. It's part of our our daily practice. Hmm. Why don't we step back a little bit and go back to the notion of the mind? Um, how is the mind different from the brain? That's a great question, and it was really interesting to research this. In traditional science, there's no difference. When we read this information and we talk to neuroscientists, they make a very clear distinction between the mind and the brain. And the science books on the mind make this very clear, too, that the brain is is local. It's housed within our skull. The mind is non-local. The mind is part of the universal mind. The brain really is is the receiving plate. That's something that is starting to actually gain a lot more acceptance out in the great wide world Mm -hmm. because most people, um, when they start out and when they go through school and so on, they're taught that the brain is um, the the repository and the processor and so on. Um, And really it's been with teachers like Bruce Lipton and and, uh, Candace Pert and, and... uh, more recently with a lot of the books, uh, speci- particularly this book by Evan Alexander, who is a neurosurgeon who suffered a near-death experience, and he was brain dead, and yet he was still conscious. And so that really got his attention. Um, so this this subject, this idea of the non-local mind, um, let's let's explore that for a minute. 
you talk about different levels of non-local mind, and we, we touched on it at the beginning, but I, I think it bears repetition. Tell us about the three aspects or the three levels of mind okay. um, and how um, they interact. What is re- who is responsible for what? Okay. One thing I found interesting when I started researching the science is that if you take the names out, you don't know if you're reading something a scientist or an ageless wisdom uh, practitioner said, you can't tell the difference because they're talking in exactly the same language. The three aspects of the mind are our rational mind, which we use in our day-to-day lives, the soul, which is said to be our individual fragment of the divine mind, and I had a problem with that first. I couldn't quite visualize how that worked. And then the higher mind, which is directly connected to the universal mind of God. And when we make a bridge between these three aspects of the mind, and Bailey calls this the new and true science of the mind, this bridge building, it's actually done in two pieces. The first span, so to speak, is created between the mind, the soul, and the brain. And when we have that contact, then we have access to the higher levels. The second span, and this is at a more more, uh, evolved state of uh, awareness, it's between the soul and the higher mind. And that's when we have a direct line of communication between the higher mind and the brain. And it was this experience that led Jesus to say, I and my Father are one. We have direct contact with the mind of God. Do you think more people are being enabled to make that further connection now? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's essential that we have this information, that we have people that are able to bring in these higher levels of information, and that we have people that have access to the soul and the experience that it brings. It really does shift us from our own individual lives into this wider world where we want to serve the greater good. And you can imagine what, how, how life would change if we had a critical mass of people with that kind of consciousness. Is that what you would call ascension? Pardon me? Ascension. I don't know, actually. That's a good question. I don't know. I think maybe the later stage. Mm-hmm. I don't really think of it nor have come across it in those exact terms. Well, if you do have this kind of direct pipeline to the universal mind, mm-hmm. um, maybe it's maybe it's a question of the um, of the quality and and uh, clarity of that pipeline, whether right. or not you you become an ascended master or not. Mm-hmm. I think what they're talking about when they talk about ascension, they're talking about um, this connection with the soul, and mm-hmm. it happens gradually when we make that contact with the soul. There's still some duality. There's a human personality, and then there's a soul. And we feel like we have a divine partner. And that's the experience that I'm having now, is realizing that we're not alone. And at a later stage, the soul and personality merge, and the physical body then becomes just the vehicle on earth for the soul. And it's that point where we are in the world, but not of it, in the way that Jesus talked about. He's really the model for the soul-aligned human being. Mm -hmm. And one thing I noticed... When I, when I grew up, I never read the Bible. Catholics don't read the Bible. And I started to read the esoteric Christian, Christian books first, and then I read the Bible. And I realized that it's just a lie with esoteric information. If you go a little beneath the surface, it's, it's, there's so much more there than, than the actual surface meaning. And Jesus talked about this, that he, he preached in parables to people that weren't ready for it, but that there was a deeper teaching. 
and his teaching on the um, the kingdom of God was all about this connection with the soul. We're taught that it's an after-death heaven where we go if we behave ourselves, but he doesn't say that. I mean, he talks about this over and over, that this kingdom is already within us. It's within our midst. We just can't see it. He's talked over and over that this um, kingdom is within our midst. We just can't see it. Right. And we will cross the rainbow bridge to it when we get back from our next break. I am speaking with Colleen Morrow on her book, Spiritual Telepathy, Ancient Techniques to Access the Wisdom of Your Soul. We are back speaking with Colleen Morrow, author of Spiritual Telepathy. Colleen, before the break, I was talking about the rainbow bridge that you mention in the book um, and show how it is so prevalent in art and in literature. And this, this is the bridge uh, that connects between the brain, the mind, the soul, and the higher wisdom. Um, you you also speak in your book about telepathy and the different types of telepathy. Can you expand on that for us? That's a fascinating area. Sure. There's three types of telepathy. There are instinctive telepathy, and that's the type of telepathy that we share with the animal community. There's mental or mind-to-mind telepathy, and then there's spiritual or soul-to-soul telepathy. And that's the kind of telepathy that we work to bring the to build that bridge between the brain, the mind, and the soul. And what was really fascinating to me about this is when I started to um, research it, I found, again, that it's the same in all traditions, and it also relates to the chakra system, too. Instinctive telepathy is said to utilize the third chakra or the solar plexus area, and I found that many traditions talk talk about it in exactly the same way. The kahunas are the native priests of Hawaii, and they believe that telepathic messages are sent directly from one solar plexus to another. The African Bushmen believe that all living creatures are connected by a silver stream of energy that extends from one belly button to the other, and they use these horizontal lines like telephone wires to send and receive telepathic information. The Australian Aboriginals believe it's their miwi, which makes it possible for them to hear or see at a distance, and the word translates as soul or instinct, and it's located in the pit of the stomach. The Japanese use haraji or belly talk to size up a, a partner or a business proposal. And that word derives from hara, which translates as belly or guts, and ji, which translates in the art of. So many Japanese take pride in their ability to uh, do what they call the art of the belly when <laughs> making an important business decision. And in our culture, we use the term gut feelings. So it's all centered around that same area which I found absolutely fascinating. And mental telepathy is, uh, again, mind-to-mind or thought transference. And a lot of what's studied scientifically, I think, is actually clairvoyance. And in many of these studies, they talk about the difficulty in teasing out what's clairvoyance and what's actual telepathy. I think mostly it's, it's clairvoyance. And they say that true mental telepathy utilizes the throat chakra. And it, Telepathic contact is made between two fully conscious, focused minds, and we have three good examples of that. 
One is Helen Novoblasky, who wrote The Secret Doctrine. The other is Alice Bailey, who wrote that long series of books, and Helena Rowrich. And these three women were said to be um, take, actually taking dictation for a group of masters in the Himalayas. And Bailey talks about this a lot in her autobiography, and I found this fascinating. She said that when she was 15, she met in the flesh a, a turbaned man who told her that he would have work for her to do in the future. And then 25 years later, she heard a voice in her head asking for her cooperation in writing a series of books. And after some reluctance, she actually agreed. And at first, she wrote down the words as they were dropped into her brain one by one. And later, she became so attuned to the mind of this Tibetan master that she was able to directly access the information. And they worked together and published 24 books. And spiritual telepathy, again, is only possible when we've created that link between the brain, the mind, and the soul. And when we do this, we have the ability to serve as intermediaries between the physical and the spiritual worlds. We not only can access information from the soul, but we can be communicating with masters uh, who guide the evolution of our planet. They can't directly affect life on Earth, and they look for those who have a direct line of communication between the soul and the brain. Information then can be dropped down and impressed on our brains. I actually uh, dog-eared that page where you wrote that. I thought that was quite fascinating. So what form of, of telepathy is used by um, healers? I think a lot of it is spiritual telepathy. They're so actually accessing information. They're acting as a conduit. Correct. Mm -hmm. And we can really access, we, we can act as the, the arms and legs of God because, again, the masters can't direct life on earth. They, they have to count on us. And they can give us information, give us ideas. I think that's what happened in my story about how the magazine started. But I, the idea for this was just dropped into my brain. Really? So we get the ideas and then we can carry it out on earth. I love it when they drop ideas into your brain and then it's up to you to figure out the details. Exactly. And I think that the information is seeded into a lot of brains. Some people act on it and some people don't. And I think that's why things happen sort of um, in a unified way. Like, for example, in the 90s there was just a flood of intuition books, flood. And then in the, um, the early um, part of the century, the focus shifted to the extended mind. And now I think it's shifting again to this higher level, this, this vertical kind of communication that we can create. Go I definitely stage. agree with you about the waves, mm -hmm. and I hadn't really thought about the me mechanics of it, but um, I totally agree on the uh, manifestation. You see these, these ideas, once, once it enters the universal mind, it seems to pop out all over like mushrooms. Right. One of the most um, intriguing parts of this was the experience that relate to genius, as we touched on just slightly before. Mm -hmm. My favorite, one of my all-time favorite books was Willis Harmon's book, Higher Creativity, and it was um, published, I think, in 1984. It was one of the inspirations for the magazine. And what he and his co-writer, Howard Rheingold, did is investigate the biographies of many um, famous artists, composers, scientists, inventors, and so on. And what they found is that many of their greatest achievements came from an intuitive breakthrough. And so they talked a lot about this in the book, and they have quotes from the book that and some of these have become very familiar. But when I was researching my book, I went back and I started reading some of their original sources, and it was fascinating to me because when I read the full biography or when I read the longer transcripts of these interviews, 
what I discovered is that they were talking about the soul in exactly the way that the wisdom teachings talk about it, that the soul is the portal or gateway to this higher world. And when they made that contact, the information just flooded their brains. And they say this over and over and over. And I have examples in different types of um, arts and science and business. It was fascinating to me that the exact words were being used. So what is your understanding of that? That it's really, again, the soul. When we make contact with the soul, we have access to the universal mind where information on all subjects can be apprehended. That that information then will just stream down into our brains. So simply by acknowledging um, the possibility, you open yourself to it. Right. Well, you have to. You open yourself to it, but then you have to do the practices. Ah. Do the practices. Aha. Uh-huh. It doesn't just happen. No, well, we will explore that when we come back from this break. about spiritual telepathy and how to actually develop that. And Colleen's book is a real how-to. I mean, she, she kind of holds your hand. So, Colleen, give us a taste of how we actually are able to develop this um, communication link within ourselves. Well, it's the day-to-day practice, and that's not a very exciting message because it takes some discipline. And in the book, I added myself as someone who didn't want to get up out of bed and meditate, and that's still true. But you have to find a way to make it work so you can have that consistency. Many people have told me, and I found this to be true for myself, is that when you stop, even for a few days, the energy between the brain and the soul starts to dissipate. So it's a, um, a method of that daily practice that really makes a difference. Again, we're projecting our attention upward from the mind to the soul, and when we do, we anchor small threads of energy that eventually thread by thread form the symbolic bridge. I think of it sometimes as a groove. The more I do it, the easier it is to just extend my attention upward. It feels like the easier it is to make that connection. It's called the Rainbow Bridge or the Bridge of Light in the Wisdom Teachings. It's called the Antakarana in the Hindu text and the Straight or Narrow Gate in the New Testament. And in the same way that our homes are wired for telephone and interconnection, internet connection, this kind of meditation allows us to create the threads and cables that link us to the higher world. And another interesting aspect of this that I read about is that we don't do this alone. As we focus our attention upward, the soul turns its attention downward, and the bridge is actually built through the united effort of both the soul and the human personality. We're pushing our attention upward, and the soul is actually pulling our attention upward. And... I think it's fair to mention that the soul is the sort of greater aspect of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's family. That's right, and that's one thing that I think helps with this idea of having to get up and do this every day, that once we get a little taste of soul contact, we want more, and the discipline seems less like homework and something that we actually want to do. The Bible says that we take heaven by storm, and this is what it means, that it's our day-to-day knocking that will finally open the door to the higher worlds. And as we approach the soul, we increasingly come under the influence of its higher vibration, and our own vibratory rate starts to speed up. And it's when our vibratory rate 
of the mind and brain matches that of the soul, that it becomes possible to enter the, the higher worlds at will. And it's that repeated contact with the higher world that produces a new type of human, and that's the soul-aligned human being. And it's made a huge difference in my own life. I have a more expanded sense of self. I'm less judgmental, more compassionate, and more understanding of the human frailties we all share. And I have a clear sense of my higher purpose, and that's another thing that makes this so dramatic, is that we do get in touch with our higher purpose, and there's nothing better. Now, everyone is talking about the benefits of meditation for health and for centering and, and for uh, generating the law of attraction. Um, you talk about creative meditation. How is that different from other kinds of meditation? Well, it, it takes it a step further. All those benefits are true, but we can do more. We can actually build that bridge to that higher level. And this is considered sort of vertical communication, as I said before. We can extend our attention upward. And then we become universal in our outlook. We start to move into superhuman development. We're not limited just to the human world. We take our steps into the superhuman realms. And how do you go about doing it? It's just that day-to-day -day practice. And I have in the book the main practice, and it's part of just um, quieting your mind. So the mind and brain get really quiet and receptive. So that's the first practice, is that you quiet your mind, you teach yourself to hold a point of focus where you choose, and the mind becomes your tool rather than your master. And a lot of this is done with seed thought meditation, that we meditate on a word or a phrase. So we're practicing directing our attention to a specific thought. Then comes the actual construction of the bridge, and there's two more meditations in the next chapter that deal with that. It's a step-by-step -step process. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned how this practice has changed your life. Mm -hmm. um, how did you actually find your life purpose? I mean, you you also have a meditation in there about founding, finding your life purpose. Mm -hmm. um, do you think everybody is actually uh, incarnated with a given purpose or are just a given set of skills? I do think we all have a purpose. I do think we do. And there's, like I said, there's nothing more fulfilling to really get in touch with that. I, I think that our passions, the things that we care most deeply about, are whispers from our soul that can guide us to a particular type of service or, or career. I told a little story in my book about when I was eight or nine, I always loved books and magazines. I was a complete bookworm. And when I was eight or nine, I read a, an, a book about a, a girl my age who had her own column in a daily newspaper. And there was something about that book that just clicked in me, and I just read it over and over, and I stared at the cover. It was a girl with a green visor hunched over a typewriter like she was some you know, newspaper reporter. And um, somehow that was it for me. I knew that I was going to be involved in publishing, and I started a little newsletter a few years later for my sixth-grade classmates. And after that, I was involved in publishing in one form or another. But you also talk about um, purpose in relation to a, a greater vision of service mm -hmm. to the greater good. Mm -hmm. How do they connect? Well, I see that what I'm doing, my involvement in publishing has been, to distribute inf information about our evolution through the Intuition magazine and through this book and through other things that I have done and will do. So we have to sort of make that connection, and uh, Corrine McLaughlin talks about this a lot. She talks about the sweet spot, and it's the connection of um, 
our greatest passions and the needs of the world. And when we have those two things together, then we hit that sweet spot where we can make the greatest contribution. Oh, I love that. Yeah, she calls it the sweet spot. The intersection of our greatest passion and the needs of the world. Mm -hmm. Wow, love it, love it. So um, where are you going next? You've written this book, uh, The Labor of Many Years. Are you going back to magazine publishing? No, I'm interested in film now. That seems like a, a logical progression. And do you have a film in the works? I do, I do. When will we hear about it? Well, I'm still writing the script, so it'll be for, it'll be a while. <laughs> but I see that as a great possibility of, of reaching the widest group of people uh-huh. through film and, and through the Internet. So Very that's where good. my interest lies at this point. So you're, um, you're actually acting as a screenwriter. Do you already have um, producers and all that stuff lined up? I have possibilities for that. Yeah, I'm working. Uh-huh. Well, I certainly look forward to, um, to watching your film when it comes out, and I have so enjoyed reading your book. I would like to commend it again to our listeners, Spiritual Telepathy uh, by Colleen Morrow. Colleen, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. And do join us next week. We have our Reviewers Roundtable, where we'll be discussing a whole bunch of books. Until then, visit my website. Well, actually, don't visit it until next week because it's down, thanks to some hackers, but it'll be back up, Phoenix-like. Anyway, that's our show for today. Thank you for joining us, and I do hope that you'll be good to yourself, do good in the world, and go out and let your light shine. Miriam Knight is the founder and publisher of New Consciousness Review, a digital magazine and website at ncreview.com. For 15 years, Miriam's Beat has been covering the thinkers, books, and films inspiring conscious evolution towards greater health, happiness, empowerment, compassion, and connection. Browse the thousands of enlightening books, interviews, and videos on ncreview.com. You can connect with Miriam on Facebook or through the website. That's ncreview.com. Has the universe been trying to get your attention? What will it take for you to start to listen? I'm Miriam Knight, and I've interviewed 37 individuals from all walks of life for our book, What Wags the World, Tales of Conscious Awakening. In it, they describe the cosmic two-by-fours that changed their lives, and their answers may make you rethink your own ideas about the nature of reality. Available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, or ask for it at your local bookstore. What Wags the World? Tales of Conscious Awakening. HealthyLife.net, the positive radio network.